Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Well, good morning, Bible Center family. It's great to have you back. Thanks for being here for our our, uh, 10 o'clock service. It's good to see some familiar faces and some faces who are just returning. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. If you're new to us, I'm Matt. I'm the lead pastor. I'd love to meet you after the service. I'll be down front. It'd be an honor uh, to answer any questions you may have, to pray with you about some things on your heart and help you get better connected Uh, here at Bible Center. We're in the middle of a 10-week series entitled Family Bundle, and in our Family Bundle series, we're trying to address as many of the questions as possible on our hearts in relation to families. I would encourage you to download the app, check out all the resources either on the app or on the website. Uh, There are over 100 books listed for you and your family to help in all different aspects of family life. Uh, as well as conferences, events, special groups, and classes. You're not going to want to miss any of that. This morning, the the title of the message is, What is a Gospel-Centered Marriage? What is a Gospel-Centered Marriage? And I just want to confess a few things as I'm getting started this morning. I know it'll make it a little awkward for her. There's nothing like being a part of the pastor's family uh, whenever you're preaching on family, right? Like, so my kids love it. My wife uh, absolutely loves it. And so I just want to say at the very beginning how thankful I am uh, for the opportunity to have the wife that God has given me for 21 years. Uh, One time we were at a pastor's fellowship and there was a woman probably well in her 90s and she'd been a pastor's wife for decades and she came up to Sarah and just thanked her. She said, I know what it takes to be a pastor's wife. And uh, she goes, I love you and am praying for you. And so, sweetheart, thank you uh, for these 21 years. I also want to say at the very beginning that I have been uh, working on this message for about a week and a half and the conviction has continued to mount Right, So like I'm going to be preaching on how to be a good husband. Of course, there's going to be some things in there for wives today. And I have to admit that I am excited that you're here because now I finally get to share all of the conviction with you, right? I get to like project it onto you and share it with you. So I already feel better just knowing that you're here and I'm going to get to lighten my load and share a little bit with you. But the last thing I want to mention today is uh, that I understand that we're all coming from different points of view, different aspects of life. And so if you had a, a parent, if you had parents who had a healthy marriage, then today is probably going to be a blessing to you. Uh, If you had parents that didn't quite have a healthy marriage today, there could be some questions that come up in your mind or bringing back some old memories and some old hurt. And so we've prayed for you, I've prayed for you, and I've asked the Lord to help you uh, maybe wade through any of those distractions and to see what he would have for you today. So let's go ahead and jump in to our big idea. Here's today's big idea. The key to a gospel or God-centered marriage is a gospel-centered marriage. The key to a God-centered marriage is a gospel-centered marriage. There actually is a difference between the two, right? So Sarah and I were married 21 years ago, and we would have said we had a God-centered marriage. We both grew up in church. We were actually in Bible college, married just before our junior year. We had saved ourselves for one another in the marriage relationship. All those boxes that you typically think you should check to be a God-centered couple, we were checking those boxes. 
But we quickly learn that just because two people grow up in church and they get married, it does not mean that you still can't have World War III with the best of them, right? We quickly learned that just because we had, quote unquote, God in our marriage, that didn't exempt us from some of the struggles and problems that are common to all married couples. And so we had a God-centered marriage, but not necessarily a gospel-centered marriage marriage. Well, in about 2005 or so, we attended a conference and the minister was preaching and teaching through Romans chapter 8. And God used that conference to awaken something in our souls uh, that wouldn't really be fully realized for another five years. It was probably about 2010, 2011 when we moved to Louisville that God used some people in our lives to help us understand really for the first time what a gospel-centered marriage really, really means. And so that's what I want to share with you today. The key to a God-centered marriage is a gospel-centered marriage. You see, the gospel is what the Bible is all about. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the unfolding story of God. Dave Harvey, a friend of mine, says this, the gospel is the heart of the Bible. Everything in Scripture is either present preparation for the gospel, presentation of the gospel, or participation in the gospel. If you're a part of the Bible Center family, if you've been part for any length of time, you recognize this name, uh, Mike Graham. The gospel is the good news of God's redemptive plan to create, save, transform, and restore his people and world through the work of Christ to the glory of God. You see, the gospel isn't the finish line of the Christian life. It's actually the starting line of the Christian life. It's the track we run on. It's the air we breathe. And again, today's big idea is the key to a God-centered marriage is a gospel-centered marriage. So what is a gospel-centered marriage? That's what I want to share for the next few minutes. My hope and desire is to share with you some things that I have learned and am still learning and through 21 years of marriage, but I wish Sarah and I had known this from day one. Number one, what is a gospel-centered marriage? Gospel-centered marriage believes that God creates. God creates. God designed marriage between a man and a woman and has created my spouse just as he wanted he or him or her to be. A gospel-centered marriage believes God creates. Look back with me at the very first marriage that ever took place in the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. It says, But for Adam there was no, super help, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh, and the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and Eve were both naked, and they felt no shame." Marriage is a creation of God. Now, society would have us believe that marriage is the construct of culture 
But according to the Bible, it, it wasn't originated in the Bronze Age. It's not the way that the world devised us to deal with property rights. No, marriage is God's idea. The Bible begins with a marriage, and the Bible ends with a marriage. Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis, Jesus and his church in the book of Revelation. Certainly, marriage is a human institution also, and it reflects the character of any particular culture in which it's embedded. But the concept and roots of marriage are God's idea. Similarly, your spouse is God's creation for you. If you believe that God is sovereign, that God controls all things, that means that the spouse that God has given you is designed and was created just for you. Husbands, that woman that God has given you is created just as he wanted her to be. There is no stray DNA in her. Her appearance, her laugh, her smile, her personality, her boldness or her shyness, her sense of humor, her body, all of this is God's gift to you. Never, ever forget it. Women, that man God has given you is God's gift to you. He created him just as he wanted him to be. There is no stray DNA in him. His height, his strength, his laugh, his smile, his personality, his organization, or even his lack of organization is God's gift to you. Don't forget that. Not now, not five years from now, not 50 years from now. So a gospel-centered marriage believes God created marriage, God created my spouse. Secondly, a gospel-centered marriage believes that sin breaks. Sin breaks. Sin has wreaked havoc on the institution of marriage, and my sin continually challenges my own marriage. A gospel-centered marriage believes that sin breaks. Think with me about all the people present at a wedding. We've done innumerable weddings here over the last five, six years uh, at Bible Center. We actually did a wedding on, on Monday, this past Monday. There was a couple uh, that decided to get married. It was just beautiful. They were in our early service. They got married right in front of the fireplace with some friends and family around. I love weddings. My family and I, that's one of our favorite things to do in pastoral ministry is be a part and observe and see weddings. Now, but think about the people present at any particular wedding. You've got the maid or matron of honor, and she's sitting there looking at the happy couple, and she's just thinking to herself, they are so in love, and their love can conquer anything. Then there's the mutual friend at the wedding. The mutual friend is thinking, well, compatibility is key, and this couple has a lot in common, and so their marriage is going to go the distance because they're compatible. And then there's the pastor or the youth pastor at the wedding, and he's thinking, well, it all comes down to parenting. This couple had great parents, and so surely their marriage is going to go the, the distance. And then there's the CPA, Uncle Bob, right? Uncle Bob, the CPA. And he's sitting out in the audience, and he's thinking to himself, I've seen this couple's portfolio. This couple is bound to go the distance, right? They're, what could go wrong? And then there's the best man, and he knows all the books that the, 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 the groom has read on marriage, and he knows how determined and ready he is. There's no way. My buddy never fails at anything. He's never going to fail 
at this marriage. But one thing all of those perspectives seem to forget is that there's something, there's like some luggage that both husband and wife are bringing into that marriage. It's called their sin nature. Certainly there's some hurt and suffering from both of their stories, but the biggest piece of luggage that we bring is our sin nature. You see, Adam chose to disobey God, and that sin nature has been passed down to you and to me, which is why every single day our flesh wants us to receive more from the marriage than we give to the marriage. Sin breaks. It makes sense why getting married is easy and being married is hard work. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18. The things that come from a person's mouth come from the heart. And these defile them, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. James, Jesus' half-brother, says in James 4, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Have you ever made a mistake? Have you ever made a poor choice or even sinned against the Lord or your spouse and said something like this? I just can't believe I did that. Or, or maybe you said to yourself, that's not who I am. I, this just, it's just as surprising to me as it is to you, right? Most of us have said that. What I'm saying today, according to the authority of God's word, is that it actually is part of your nature. That sin actually still is part of your flesh. And though you be a Christian, though you be redeemed, we still carry this thing called a flesh until the day Jesus makes all things new. So don't be surprised when you feel the temptation or even unfortunately give into the temptation. It is not something foreign to you, but it's very part of your flesh and mine. If you're married, I guarantee that your sin has affected and will continue to affect your relationship at some point. If you're a fearful person with a tendency towards unhealthy belief and unchecked anxiety, uh, that will certainly affect your spouse. You may be a proud person with a tendency to be overly opinionated and selfish. That will affect your spouse. You may be an inflexible person with a, demanding, with a personality that's very demanding or you get sulky if you don't get your way. You may be an abrasive or harsh person that people tend to respect more than they tend to love. Maybe you're an undisciplined person with a tendency to be unreliable and disorganized. You may be an oblivious person who tends to be distracted and you tend to be insensitive or aware of how you come across to others. Maybe you are a perfectionist 
with a tendency to be judgmental or critical of others. You may be an impatient or irritable person. You may be a highly independent person who doesn't like to be responsible for joint decisions and definitely doesn't like to ask for help. You may be a person who wants far too much to be liked, and so you shade the truth, and you will say whatever it takes in order to be liked. You may be a thrifty person, but maybe your thriftiness has crossed over into being miserly, not generous with your time or your money. You may be an unforgiving person holding a grudge, holding something against your spouse that happened years and years ago that you're never able to let go. Unfortunately, it's a reality that we all have to be aware of. Think with me about a bridge. Let's compare marriage to a bridge. So here's a picture of a bridge that uh, goes across the Mississippi River in Memphis. I believe it's off I-40. And from the outside, it looks like a good bridge. It looks like a healthy bridge. Most of us would have no problem saying, yeah, I'll drive over that bridge. We do it every day. But something about this particular bridge, if you've watched the news this summer, this bridge is currently closed because as the increasing weight went across the bridge, these fissures became apparent. And with the bouncing of the bridge, the cracks became more and more apparent. And so it is closed indefinitely, the last I heard, for repairs. I want to meet the person who's going to be the first person to drive over the bridge once they say it is totally fixed. But marriage is a lot like that, right? We, we go into a marriage and, and we, we expect to give our best and our spouse is going to give their best. And people look at our marriage from a distance and think everything is great, everything is perfect. But the weight of life has a tendency to make these cracks show up, become more apparent the longer we bear under the weight of life. And what the Bible teaches is that marriage didn't cause the cracks The weight of marriage simply reveals the cracks that are already there. In other words, our sinful nature becomes almost um, highlighted the longer we live with someone else, whether that be a marriage partner or a friend or co-workers. It tends to bring out not only the best in us, but the worst in us. So I want to ask you this morning, can you think of any places where your sin is affecting your marriage right now? Now, please don't think about your spouse's sin, right? You already have that list that you keep with you in the memos of your phone about your spouse's sin. I want to ask you about your sin. Where is your sin affecting your marriage right now? I want to encourage you. I love you, but as your pastor, I want to challenge you to confess that sin to God. In a few minutes, we're going to take communion. And during communion, that's a time for you to confess that to the Lord. And after church, confess that to your spouse. Ask the Lord, ask your spouse for for grace and help to succeed in areas where maybe your sin is affecting your relationship. But also remember, you've married a sinner. Your husband, your wife is a sinner, just like their great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve. Your spouse has the same selfish desires that you do. He or she may say things that hurt you. Without even knowing it, your spouse may choose something over you. 
Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a sport. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's the children. Inevitably, your spouse will choose something over you. Don't be bitter against them. Talk to them. Communicate to them. Tell them what is affecting you, what is affecting your marriage. But remember, they struggle with the same sin you do. A gospel-centered marriage understands that perspective. Not only that God creates, but also that sin breaks. Number three, a gospel-centered marriage believes this. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. I can extend unconditional love to my spouse because Jesus has given that kind of love to me. Jesus saves. Notice what Paul writes in Romans 7. What a wretched man I am, he says. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul didn't stay here thinking that, well, there's no good I'm ever going to be able to do in my life. You shouldn't stay in sin breaks thinking that, well, all I'm ever going to do is just jack things up. But instead, you can celebrate the fact that through Jesus Christ our Lord, Jesus can save your soul and Jesus can save your marriage. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. In other words, we receive love from God and we extend that love to others, including our spouse, including our children. Tim Keller writes this about marriage. He says, marriage is a major vehicle for the gospel's remaking of your heart from the inside out and your life from the ground up. The reason that marriage is so painful and yet wonderful is because it's a reflection of the gospel, which is both painful and wonderful at once. He goes on to say, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is the only kind of relationship that will really transform us. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we really can't hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. Let's think of, um, let's think of marriage a lot like coffee. All right? How many of you love coffee? Where are our coffee drinkers in here? All right, who are coffee addicts? And that is a there is a difference. All right, my hand should probably be raised. Yeah. All right, so some of you are like my father. You love black coffee, right? My dad's coffee was so strong, like you could pour it out, and it would stand up and walk on its own two feet. Like that's the kind of coffee. And some of you love that kind of coffee. Now, as I've grown up, I've actually preferred to put some sweetener in my coffee. I like a little uh, Splenda in the coffee. Maybe you're more of a honey person or a sugar person or whatever else you put in your coffee. Now, think of, think of the gospel a lot like the sweetener to marriage, like, like sugar is to coffee. It, it sweetens it. It's really, for some of us, the only way that we can drink our coffee. And I would argue that it's the only way that any marriage can actually survive. So 
there have been people, there have been folks, friends, who have thought, and through pastoral counseling, they confess that they thought the key to their marriage was good sex, right? If you can have good sex, that then all of a sudden, that is going to be the sweetener for the marriage. And certainly, it's God's gift to marriage. God created it. The devil didn't invent it. God invented it. And yet, it's not the sweetener to marriage. Some have thought that money is the sweetener to marriage, right? The more money you have. Matter of fact, if you have plenty of money, there won't be any marriage problems. Well, we know that's not true, right? From experience, some folks that, that we know have plenty of money and yet struggle in their marriage. So, so if it's not physical intimacy and it's not money, what is the sweetener to marriage? The answer is the gospel. The gospel gives us mercy. The gospel gives us grace. The gospel gives us forgiveness. And without that, a marriage is going to struggle indefinitely. It's not the presence of our differences that make two people incompatible. I would argue that no one is perfectly compatible. It's the absence of mercy. Mercy takes people who are capable of open warfare over toothpaste tubes and toilet seats. And we are capable of that. And it opens our heart to include a Savior's love. Mercy, for instance, confronts a sinner wrapped in self-pity and protected by pride and shows him or her the way out of darkness into his marvelous light. So I'll ask you this morning, where are you not showing your spouse mercy? Where can you not forgive your spouse or show grace to your spouse? Where is it that, that you have so dug in your heels that you are determined not to give any grace or any love to your spouse? And my question is, if Jesus Christ could forgive you of so much, how can you not then show mercy to your spouse? Now this morning, I'm not talking about abuse. If you've been abused in some way, seek help. One of the most merciful things you can do for your spouse is for you to seek help so that they can get help. We're not talking about suffering under abuse. Again, if that's you, reach out to one of us. Reach out to your pastors. We want to help. But most of the things that we dig our heels in about have nothing to do with abuse. It's simply because we're not getting our way. And how in the world can we sing the songs like Amazing Grace or the goodness of God and not show that goodness to our spouse? It is really, really hard for two people to have a bad marriage when they are overwhelmingly grateful for the grace of Jesus. A gospel-centered marriage believes that Jesus saves. Number four, a gospel-centered marriage believes that Jesus transforms. Just as Jesus is still slowly changing me into his image, he is still changing my spouse into his image. Where there's life, there's hope. The gospel not only saves us, but Jesus also transforms us. Over time, as we learn the depths of our sin and we learn the, the beauty of the cross and the grace of Christ, 
we become more and more aware of our need to be transformed into his image. If you think about it, God has given your spouse as a transforming agent for you. Certainly God uses his word and uses his spirit and uses his church, but God will also use your spouse to transform you into the image of Jesus and you, your spouse, into the image of Jesus. Now, when things come up, and there are things that do come up in marriage that you want to talk with your spouse about, you want to, maybe it's something that's not necessarily a sin, it's just a weakness, something that's hurting the marriage, or maybe it is a, a really, really big issue, you have two choices. The first choice is you can ignore it. You can totally ignore it. And actually, that sometimes is the most godly thing you can do. Proverbs and 1 Peter say, love covers a multitude of sins. When Sarah and I got married 21 years ago, she'll tell you that I thought, right, because of my love for the Bible and my love, supposed love for God, I thought it was my obligation to confront everything that was wrong in our marriage. Translation, everything that was wrong with her. Right? I couldn't let anything go because, you know, you know, after all, truth is truth, right? You ever meet somebody like that? can't ever let anything go. Boy, that's a hard place. It was a hard place for our marriage. Maybe it's a hard place for you. Sometimes the godliest thing you can do is remember love covers a multitude of sins. Just close your mouth. The other night, Sarah and I were playing cards with my parents, and, and uh, uh, my mom had, had done something, was trying to, she wasn't quite cheating, but, you know, it was like that gray area, you know, when you're playing a game. It's just that gray area. And I looked at my dad like, aren't you going to confront her? Aren't you going to tell her? And dad just smiled because he knew he had to go home with her, right? So he, he wasn't about. Sometimes the godliest thing you can do. But there are times when you do need to confront and challenge and ask your spouse about an area where you feel they need to grow or where they've hurt you or where they're hurting the marriage. And that's certainly uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So it's totally acceptable. I will give you some encouragement. When that time comes, ask your spouse for permission. Ask him for permission. Say, hey, is now a good time for me to talk to you about something serious? And let them give you permission to talk about it. Here's several principles because I'm a, I think in pictures. Here's a few pictures that'll give you some principles. One is what I call the sledgehammer principle. Never use a sledgehammer to hit, to drive in a thumbtack ever, right? So everything doesn't require equal force or great force. Sometimes it's just a discussion. Here's another principle. I call this the dumb truck principle. Stick to one item at once. Don't unload the whole dump truck. You ever done that with your spouse? Like you're in the middle of, a, of an argument or a discussion, as Christians call them, and, and all of a sudden you bring up everything they've ever done since 1912, and they didn't even live in 1912, right? I call that the dump truck principle. Unfortunately, I've done that to my wife. Do not do that. Another principle is what I call the hand grenade principle, and some of y'all are good at this. I love you, but you're good at this. It's where you bring something up, but you're not prepared to see it through. You pop the pin and you run to the other room for cover. You make that statement just to give a little jab to your spouse, and then you run. Oh, don't do the hand grenade principle. Remember, your spouse is being transformed by Jesus, just like you're being transformed by Jesus. Married couples, 
Remember, God is still working on your spouse for sure. And he's also still working on you. Don't make the mistake so many spouses make when they get married, thinking that it's their job, their sole job, to change their spouse into what they want them to be. Instead, remember that Jesus is changing you into what he wants you to be. And in due time, he can use you to help transform your spouse into what Jesus wants them to be. Read God's word. Talk to him in prayer. Get in a good church where you can grow, where you can thrive with spiritual friends, but your spouse needs you, and you need your spouse. Men, if Jesus, if God gave Jesus the power to rise from the grave, he can give you the power to take out the trash. Ladies, if God gave Jesus the power to rise from the grave, he can give you the power to bite your lip one more time. Fellas, if God gave Jesus the power to rise from the grave, he can give you the power to look at your wife and listen to your wife and put your phone down. You say, man, that's a lot of power. It takes a lot of power. Ladies, if God gave Jesus the power to rise from the grave, he can give you the power to physically show affection to your husband, even though you may not want to at that particular time. God transforms, and it's very, very practical to marriage. Number five, and lastly, a gospel-centered marriage believes that God restores Lastly, number five, it believes that God restores. God will one day make all things new in the new heaven and on the new earth. Though marriage is temporal, how I cultivate my marriage will echo into eternity. If you've not read the last few chapters of the Bible, Revelation, I encourage you to read those. You can turn to the back of the book and find out Jesus wins. The kingdom of Christ wins. Wins And so as you think about the book of Revelation, we're, we're reminded God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. If you're a follower of Jesus, one day God's going to make a new you. He's going to resurrect your body to be re- reunited with your soul, with your spirit. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, my encouragement to you today is to repent and believe the gospel. That's the challenge to you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day to give you new life. And so your first step is to repent and believe the gospel. But Christian, think about this. You are going to live forever with Jesus and with your spouse. Now, Matthew 22 teaches us that there's no, not going to be any marriage in the resurrection. And so that's an awful disclosure that disappoints me. I tell my wife, I hope I can live next door to her in the new heaven and the new earth. I'm waiting for her to tell me that she wants to live next door to me in the new heaven and the new earth. So marriage is temporal. But God has given us each other to prepare for eternity. How you live out your marriage today will have eternal impact. Not only on you, but on your spouse. So believe that God restores. Believe the gospel in terms of your marriage. You say, Matt, how can we apply this message to our life? Here's the takeaway today. Here's the takeaway. Center your marriage around the gospel. Center your marriage around the gospel. Not just around church, 
Not just the fact that you got that big family Bible sitting on the coffee table that collects dust that you know no one ever reads. That doesn't make your, your marriage a God-centered marriage. Center your life around the gospel. There's some practical ways you can do that. First of all, celebrate what's going right in your marriage. Celebrate what's going right. There is no marriage here. There's no marriage on TV. There's no marriage online that doesn't resemble some aspect of God's grace, God's common grace in the world. So celebrate where where things are going well with your marriage. That might be a good dinner conversation. Hey, what's going well with our marriage? Take time to talk about that. There are things. But secondly, confess where things are going wrong in your marriage. Ignoring the problem will never make it better. Confess it. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion, and you can go to the Lord and say, Lord, this is what I need to confess. You're not going to give an account on Judgment Day for your spouse's relationship with Jesus primarily. You're going to give an account for your relationship with Jesus. So confess. But then lastly, ask the Lord to change what needs to be changed. Ask the Lord for his grace. Ask your spouse for help to change what needs to be changed. Think about the impact it could have on your home. The impact it could have on your marriage, on your children. What it could do for this church. I'm so thankful for those single men and women in our church who are praying during this series for you, married couples, for us. We want you to win. They want you to win. I want you to win. Think about what it could do. You say, Matt, why is this so important? Why in the world is this so important? Here's why it's so important. The key to a God-centered marriage is a gospel-centered marriage. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. 